You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, thank you for being here this morning. Welcome to Grace Community Church. If you are returning for the 235th time, I'm so glad you are here. If it's your first time, we are very grateful you're here. If it's your first time, it's going to seem like, whoa, wow, those guys talk about some really interesting things. Uh, because we will get into some interesting things. A couple of things I just wanted to say. One, uh, Haley Shambly's father died this week, and so just be praying for the family. Um, we want to bless our, ask the Lord to bless them. Scott and, and Haley are in Virginia this week, and the services are going to be later in the week. But just be praying for, for Haley especially and the loss of her dad. He was young. I mean, just very young. It's always surprising to us in the 21st century when people die at a young age. And then I did want to mention also uh, Next week has already been mentioned in the announcements, the hanging of the greens. We're not providing a meal this time, uh, so either stay and get going or go get a meal and come back and finish up what the, the guys who started uh, the process, you can finish the process. The hanging, the greens have already been hung at the tally house on uh, Old Bramble Lane. We heard a survey um, about People that decorate early are happier people in general. <laughs> now, this uh, survey was confined to one home on Old Bramble Lane, but uh, we'll take it. No, I'm just kidding. Allison really did read that, but um, it's just one of those things. We're, we're decorated early and enjoying it, too. Well, I want to ask you a question, and I'm sure you could come up with some answers pretty quickly. What are the kinds of issues that divide churches? I mean, that split churches right down the middle. We've all heard the sad reports of disagreements over the color of carpet being the cause for churches to split. Now, we know that it's not carpet color preferences that really cause the split. There are deeper issues uh, that go to control and spiritual immaturity. But it's crazy the things that churches get all upset about and divide and go different ways. What kinds of doctrinal issues divide churches? I'm not talking about the close-fisted kinds of issues such as the Trinity and salvation by grace through faith, but open-handed issues such as the mode and timing of baptism. Uh, the use of spiritual gifts and the different views about Christ's second coming, all that surrounds the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. Perhaps the most divisive issue in many churches today, evangelical churches, is the doctrine of election. Does man have the free will to decide whether he will believe in Jesus once he has heard the gospel? Or was her decision determined before the foundation of the world? Which is it? I truly wonder if the account that I'm about to give really happened. But I heard it as a true story. And it was reported to have taken place in an Atlanta area church. So if it is an urban legend, at least it has an urban location. 
The church members in this church were divided over the issue of free will and election. And so they were having a potluck one Sunday after church. And one of the gentlemen of a Calvinist persuasion stood up and said with a chicken leg held high in his hand. It was foreordained before the foundations of the world that on this day I would eat this chicken leg. And a gentleman from the other persuasion was across the table, reached up, yanked it out of his hand, said, well, it won't happen today, and took a big bite and split the church wide open. I hope it happened because it's too good a story to waste, right? No, it's terrible, but indeed... We get excited over crazy things. May I say before we wade into our text today, and we're going to deal with this issue. So those of you who are here first time, we don't get into the controversial kinds of things that we talked about last Sunday and this Sunday, both. I have mounted the pulpit both the last two Sundays, just exhausted emotionally. And the Lord has given me energy. But these are not easy topics. But this is not a doctrinal issue over which we should divide. If you are more Arminian in your theology, in other words, if you believe that we all have free will and we have a choice to say yes or no to Jesus once he's presented to us, then I do not assume that you question God's sovereignty or eternal security. You may question eternal security, but I don't think you question God's sovereignty, that God is Sovereign over all things in in the world. And he is all powerful and in control of all things. If you're more Calvinist in your theology. You believe that God chooses us and we have nothing to do with it. Then I do not assume that you don't feel we have a need to witness. Since God will save whom he will. We'll not go to great depths on this issue today. But we're going to talk about election and free will. Not because I want to. But because the text forces us to consider how God saves people. Today's text is John 12 verses 36b through 50. Last week in view of our budget process. We took a little break from John to talk about what the Bible says about our giving to the church. To the poor to other people. Today we're back in John. And after we see how today's offering is. We may take another little break next Sunday. Uh, until, no, just kidding. I'm not kidding. So which is it? Does God choose me either for salvation or for judgment and I have nothing to do with it? Or does he give me the opportunity to make my own choice once I hear and understand the gospel? We're not going to stand for the reading of the scripture today. Uh, But rather, I'm going to work through the text before making application. And I promise this is not just a whole bunch of lists like last week. But before we get into the text, I want to get three principles that will be helpful as we seek to interpret the text. First, what you believe about election or choice does not save you. That's not what saves you. What you believe about Jesus either saves you or leaves you under condemnation. The wording is important to understand. We have seen repeatedly in John that when we believe, we are at that moment no longer under condemnation. If we refuse to believe in Jesus, we remain 
in the state we were already in. Our natural standing before God is that we have no standing before God. We are under condemnation. Second, God's word does not seek to resolve tensions that make modernists, moderns, or postmodernists so uncomfortable. We want everything to be answered in the ways that will satisfy our intellectual curiosity and desires for there to be order in our thinking as well as our lives. If you have every answer to every question in Scripture, then I am concerned that you're seeking to reconcile tension in areas that God left intentionally ambiguous. Does that make sense? Intentional ambiguity is one of those very interesting features or characteristics that we find in Scripture that actually have a lot of really positive effects, but it's difficult for us because we don't like ambiguity. <clears throat> so the ambiguous passages and doctrines are not there to confuse us, but rather to remind us that God's ways and his thoughts are higher than our ways and our thoughts. In other words, he is God, we are not. Third, we are called to trust in a God who is holy omniscient and just and to love one another. Holy, omniscient, he knows everything. We acknowledge also he's all powerful, he's ever present and he is just. He will always do the right thing and we are called in that case to love one another. If God exists and I know that your presence here today, the, with your presence here, the great majority confess that he does. <clears throat> if God exists, I do not think we get to tell God who, the kind of God he ought to be. People say a lot, you know, you hear people say, well, I just can't believe a God who would do this or that. I don't think we get to tell God who he ought to be. If we acknowledge that he is holy, that he knows everything, and that he always does what is right and just, then we can trust him with all our hearts, even when we don't understand his ways. Since God is bigger than we are, then in humility, we are called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we may disagree on philosophical, theological issues that should not bring division. And so on that note, let's get into the word. John 12, 36b to 50. Before we begin, though, let's ask the Lord to reveal his truth to us. Let's pray. In fact, Lord, and in reality, we recognize that if you do not reveal yourself to us, then we can't know you. And we also acknowledge that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. And so we pray that you would open our hearts to receive the truth that you have given. And that we would know not only Jesus as our Savior, 
but that we would know you as the holy and sovereign and just God that you are. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 36b, the second half of the verse. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? These last 15 verses of John 12 we're going to be examining today constitute a summary of Jesus' public ministry. And so the Apostle John is reflecting theologically on all the things that Jesus has said and done to this point. And he sort of summarizes what he sees as happening from Old Testament scripture, from the Holy Spirit working in his life, from his recollection of what Jesus said and did. And then he's going to give a summary of Jesus' uh, public profession during his ministry, his his public confession of belief during his ministry. John begins here by saying that Jesus hid himself, which was not only done for physical protection, but there is a spiritual dimension to his hiding himself as well. Even though Jesus had done all of these miracle signs, John calls them, that authenticated his words, the very people to whom the Messiah had been promised refused to believe. And so Jesus hid himself from them. I've thought about this the last two to three weeks. I don't know, just thought about it a lot in Scripture. The Lord presents himself to us. And there's a, there's a window, a, a, a window of time in which we can respond. And at a certain point, that window closes. And he calls us to respond to him. John was incredulous at their unbelief. But as he reflected on Isaiah 53, which is where um, verse 38 is quoting from, Isaiah 53, he realized that God had prophesied through Isaiah that this would be the case. Even though the Messiah had appeared in their time, right before their very eyes, they refused to believe. They had been given multiple opportunities to believe. But no. Of their own free will, they chose not to believe God, right? John continues to muse in verse 39, where he now thinks about Isaiah 6, verses 9 to 10. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Wait a minute. Why did they not believe? Because they could not believe. And why could they not believe? Because God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Now before you say, amen, or hey buddy, wait just a minute, where are you going? First of all, it's the word, okay? Let's try to understand it as best we can. Let's walk through it and get our heads around it as best we can. First, these verses let us know that nothing happens apart from God's will. Nothing happens 
apart from God's will. If we say that, yes, things do happen apart from God's will, we're in trouble. But when we think back to Isaiah 6, we remember from last year that these people, the people of Israel, were neck deep in the sin of idolatry. And much like Pharaoh, we're told that the Israelites hardened their own hearts in addition to God hardening their hearts. So which came first? Usually they're put right together. We're not told which comes first. We do know that the two principles are simultaneously in play. There are two principles, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And a lot of people say, well, that's just another way of saying God chooses and we can't do anything about it, but we're still responsible for it. Whether you like the terms or not, those are the two best terms. These are the ones that just fit. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. God is in control and we are responsible for our choices. While it is so that these are almost always given in tandem, and God rarely presents one side of the equation without the other. Romans 9 makes a strong case for God's sovereignty as the only factor in human response to the Lord. But here in John, as most places in Scripture, the Jewish leaders disbelieved Jesus in the face of overwhelming evidence that he was indeed the Messiah. More about this in a few minutes. Just, just hold on to that and we'll come back to it in a few minutes. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who did Isaiah see? Jesus. You remember the scene in Isaiah 6? I was in the temple. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. There were angels covering their eyes, flying, worshiping the Savior. <clears throat> the Worshipping Yahweh, I saw the glory of the Lord. Essentially, John is saying, that was Jesus that Isaiah saw. And then verse 42 and 3. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Do you think in verses 42 and 43 that these authorities who believed in Jesus but kept silent were truly saved or not? It, it sounds like they were not because they were more fearful of man than they were of God. But the Greek construction seems to point toward, yes, they were true believers. Now we know that in just a few days, Joseph of Arimathea is going to join with Nicodemus and ask for Jesus' body, prepare Jesus' body for burial. And Matthew tells us, for goodness sake, it was Joseph's tomb in which Jesus was laid. And then it says this, but he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. So we know that Joseph indicated to the entire world, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus. To pay the kind of respect that he did to Jesus' body. So some of these secret disciples were saved. Surely they were. Nonetheless, it seems that the belief described in verses 42 to 43 was shallow and spurious.
serious for both. In other words, it wasn't genuine. Perhaps some would eventually come to the point of full faith, like Joseph, but we don't know. In verses 44 to 50, John gives a brief summary of Jesus' message during his two and a half to three and a half years of ministry. We've heard these themes and this truth all through John. I'm going to read with little comment, but notice as I read the role and importance of Jesus' word in eternal life and eternal judgment. Just because Jesus is not here speaking to us today, I would love to be in the audience with you as Jesus is speaking to us. But just because he's not, his word is here. And it's the same as him being here. He says it very clearly. And we are accountable whether we believe or not. We have his word and it is, is his word that will judge those who do not believe. Beginning in verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Again, this is John summarizing Jesus' teaching. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Do you see what he's saying here? You're in darkness, and when you believe in me, you come into light. But if you do not believe, you remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. And then this is important. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment, his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. In other words, Jesus is saying, my purpose, the Father's purpose are exactly the same, identical. He's going to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But he, he pretty much said that in this text as well. Jesus made no bones about it. I am God. So, five points of application that are really mostly just five, four ways of stating the truth that we have read. And then another last point that deals with our action. The first four, though, are primarily about our belief. First, it is our sin that condemns us not our unbelief. This is an important place to begin our thinking about who gets saved and why. Just like we just read, if you believe in me, then you're brought into light. You're no longer, you will not remain in darkness. That's when you believe, you come into the light. Jesus has repeatedly said in John that unless you believe in him, you will remain in the state that is your natural state. The state of condemnation. It's blind. You're blind. You're in darkness. You're not born again. You're under condemnation. We are born in our sinful condition. It is not something we choose, but something that was already ours. Adam and Eve 
were the only two human beings ever to have original righteousness. When we talk about original sin, we talk about the fact that we are all born in sin. We're not born with a choice to sin or not. We're going to sin because we are sinners. Do we sin because we're sinners or are we sinners because we sin? Well, the answer is yes. It's far more that we're already sinners. We're born. We don't get a choice. That's where we are. So will our refusal to believe in Jesus send us to hell? Let's put it this way. It keeps us from having eternal life. But it is our sin that has already destined us for hell. And unless Jesus changes our destiny by saving us, we have no hope. Another way of saying that is that unless we believe that Jesus died to take the punishment we deserve for our sins, then we will remain under judgment. It is theologically sound to say that all are condemned already and the Lord saves his people, his chosen ones, out of destruction into salvation. That's why Jesus can say in verse 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. It sounds a lot like judgment at times, but Jesus is saying You're every, the world's already under judgment. I came to save people out of their condemnation. You know, we have no problem thinking of Israel as God's chosen people, right? So why is it so difficult to think about those who believe in Jesus during these New Testament days as God's chosen people? Sort of language is, is used over and over in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2.9, the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle Peter, I'm sorry, speaking primarily to Gentiles, writes this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This couldn't be the Jews. Jews understood that only the tribe of Levi is where priests came from. If you were not a Levite, you could not be a priest. We're now all priests. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Regardless of where we end in our understanding of how people get saved, we must start with the point that we are all under condemnation and that God has chosen a people for himself, for his glory and their good. Second, God's ways and purposes are beyond our ability to comprehend, but not beyond our capacity to trust. So once again, let me ask, does God save people only according to his pleasure and determination? Or does he offer salvation to those who hear the gospel and then he leaves it up to them to decide? Obviously, you can make a case for either position or there would be no disagreement among people who agree about so many other parts of Scripture. When I hear people say, I just don't believe in predestination. I, I think you probably don't mean that the way that it sounds. Because scripture says over and over, God has predestined his children to be saved. Um, 
Probably what is meant is something like, I do not believe predestination or election is practiced by God the, the way that some people say it is today. And I have the scripture to prove it. There is indeed scripture that says God longs for people to be saved, but they would not believe the gospel of John is full of this kind of language. That seems to imply choice. Just a thought. If you want to do a study on this in the New Testament sometime, just draw a line down the center of the paper, paper and have two categories. The verses in Scripture that say God chose, chooses us and we have nothing to do with that decision. We just are, are His people. He's called us to be His people. Just like He called Abraham. Abraham wasn't seeking after God. God chose Abraham and He calls the children of Israel His chosen people. So God chooses us, we have nothing to do with it. On the other column, write um, our opportunity to believe or reject the gospel. And then put all the verses down on both. One column is going to be a lot longer than the other column. But both columns indicate the fact that this issue is bigger than we might think that it is at first blush. It indicates he is God we are not. There's no contradiction. Just a bigger picture. Speaking of God, the third point is there is no legitimate belief in God apart from full belief in Jesus. One of the reasons that four of these five points at the end of, the, end of reading the text are about belief rather than Christian behavior is because one of the primary questions that John is answering or he is He's asking and then he's answering over and over is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And then, what are we to do with this Jesus? People feel far more comfortable talking about God than about Jesus. And people feel far more comfortable praying to dear sweet baby Jesus of Talladega Nights than they do of, of the Jesus of John's gospel. It's our responsibility to present the Jesus in John and to bring people to a point of decision. Hey, wait a minute. Decision? They choose one way or the other. Fourth, God's word saves to eternal life and judges to eternal darkness. How important is God's word? John 1.14 tells us that Jesus is the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then John 17.17, 17, this great high priestly prayer Jesus, we're going to read this when we come to it. Jesus is praying not only for the disciples, but all who would believe. In other words, Jesus is praying for us. And he prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then here in John 12, in our text, verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last what to make of all this? God's word is no joke. 
we had best take it as seriously as God does. Furthermore, let the word direct your life in the present day rather than allowing the present day to shape your understanding of the word. This morning in Grace Connection, those of you who were in that class, you learned about the different church polity structures, the way that leadership is structured in different churches. You ever thought about this? I don't know if uh, you guys went over this this morning. Probably did, but for the rest of you. Um, in the first century, what was the government structure uh, in, in, the, in the Roman Empire? It was imperial rule. And so church, churches quickly took on that kind of structure. Now, they followed the synagogue, as we talked about, I think, last week. Synagogue pattern, but the, the churches took on this governmental, because there were so many Gentile structure where there's a bishop or a head dude in every church, and the churches in the bigger cities, those dudes were more important than the other dudes as far as the head dudes. So the, it ended up being that the Roman church was the most important church. We followed kind of the way the culture goes. What is the predominant form of government in our day? And Smart remarks, I know, I got, and it may not last long, who knows. But we're a, a republic, we talk about democracy. But we like things to be fair. We want everybody, American is kind of an American way. Some of you didn't grow up in this kind of America, and I understand that. But we, we, we want people to have a fair shake. And so does it seem fair that God's chosen us right out of the world into his kingdom? I will tell you this. The people in Rome, the people in the Roman Empire who couldn't become a citizen, there was no way that they could have the rights of other people. When they were chosen into God's family and they were chosen to be citizens of the kingdom of God, they didn't look at that and say, well, what about my friend over, what about that, that person? This isn't fair. They were like, this doctrine was not given to divide. It was given to bless us, for us to remember and that, that we have been chosen by the God of the universe to be in his family. And regardless of which way you fall on all of this, you can agree on that because scripture is so clear about it. God has chosen us for blessing out of darkness into Last, fifth, all believers have the responsibility and privilege to stand with and for Jesus, for God's glory. Finally, something to do. What is it? Be prepared to suffer persecution. Isn't it funny? We seem more than ready to judge the Jewish authorities who at the very least assented to what Jesus said, but were afraid to make their faith public because of the consequences. But would you encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ in North Korea or in Saudi Arabia to take a, a bold stand for the Lord? Perhaps you should live in one of those countries as a Christian before you make that challenge for others to essentially stand up and pronounce their own death sentence. 
We know that many people have been martyred for their public profession of faith in Jesus. And as Tertullian said in the second century, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God uses our faithful witness to him unto death to bring other people into the kingdom. And in fact, more people died in the last century than the other 19 centuries of Christianity combined. So there's a place for standing strong for Jesus. I doubt seriously any of us will, will be called to stand for Jesus this afternoon in such a way that our lives will be in danger. But here's the question. Do people at your work know that you're a serious disciple of Jesus? Do people in your neighborhood know that? Does the love of Christ flow from you in such a way the graciousness and mercy of the Lord in the ways that you interact with those who are around you in such a way that people know you belong to Jesus. They may make fun of you. They may mock you. But if they know that you're a serious follower of Jesus, they will know who to go to when life gets hard. And life gets hard for every one of us. It's a privilege to stand with Jesus. Just like Joseph of Arimathea did. Even when it cost us dearly. You know why? Because regardless of where you fall on this topic that we have discussed today, we all come to Christ in the same way. We believe, we confess our sins, we acknowledge that we're sinners before the Lord, and we put our trust in Him. Some of you may have grown up believing that you can't remember a time you didn't believe. I'm not trying to make you doubt. What do you believe right now? What is your only hope of heaven? Is it what good things you can do? Or is it what Jesus has done for you? If you say, my only hope is Jesus and I'm throwing myself on Him and God, I'm sorry for my sins. You belong to Him. And you know what's characteristic of all of us? This world is not our home. When He returns, we walk into the kingdom of God. That was prepared for us. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. And we were all heading that way until the Lord rescued us and stopped us. If you've never believed. This morning please put your faith in Jesus. And if you know him. Live as if this day will be the day. That he returns. Let's pray. Father, I, I confess. With this great challenge. Whose challenge? More than I. I live so much as if this world is my home. As if I have to give attention to things that really don't matter in the long run. Lord Jesus, thank you for saving us. Thank you, Father, for drawing us to the side. Thank you, Spirit, for making us alive 
as the Word of God comes alive and, and brings salvation through Jesus. Lord, we have no right to stand before you in your presence and hope that you have any pleasure in us at all. <laughs> but you love Jesus and we're with him. He is in us. We are in him. Joint heirs. Father, may we live in such a way People see and desire to know this one that is light to us. May we shine as lights in a dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.